Good morning and welcome to the Rocket Talk radio show. Today we're going to be continuing our previous show. This is a continuation of our previous show for Robert Truax. That's who we're going to be talking about. This show is entitled, or these two parts are entitled, Before SpaceX. And we have Richard Garcia, who is going to be leading us on this show. Okay, so we also have Dave Nordling in the studio today, and I am A.K. Martin. Richard, tell us more about Robert Truax. Well, hi. Yeah, Robert Truax, he's probably most well known for, like, the Sea Dragon and his work with Evil Knievel, and later also his Project Private Enterprise. Uh, but before we talk about some of that stuff, I kind of want to go over, I, I guess, a, a little bit, a brief uh, biography of some of the stuff he did. So, like, he started doing amateur rocketry in the 40s after, you know, inspiration from Robert Goddard. You know, wrote Goddard a letter, you know, it was before email, right? Uh, he, he went to the military. He went to the Naval Academy at Annapolis, and later he wound up working on a liquid rocket for a Genesis to takeoff, J-Rocket, on the uh, Catalina aircraft. And a little interesting thing happened there is Robert Truax was developing this j at the same time that Robert Goddard was working on one as well. And Truax is wound up working better because he went with hypergoals at the time for you know, the, the logistics of a JATO hypergolls are a little bit better as a liquid fuel, but they've been supplanted by solid fuel uh, JATOs. Yeah, so for some of us who don't know, what what is a JATO? Okay, so he's talking about uh, you know, oh. Robert Truex developing the JATO technology in World War II, uh, right? So what is JATO? It's a jet assisted takeoff. Jet assisted and so, takeoff. okay. That's, that's right. So, uh, Basically, it, it just gives an extra boost to an aircraft so it can get off the ground with a slightly heavier payload or or use a shorter runway. If you ever go to an air show, uh, one of the things they still do is they take up I want to say it's a C-130, and they'll do a takeoff with some JDOs. You know, it'll be rolling out on on the runway, and you know, it'll just you know, practically jump up out. You know, it's a pretty pretty nice, pretty cool thing to thing to do. I've seen it at least twice at two different air shows. Uh, but those are modern JDOs with solid fuels. And for most military applications, solid fuels, just the logistics of it make it far superior to use. For uh, the war, you know, when we had Operation Paperclip to go get all the good, you know, former Nazi scientists and engineers, and we scooped up War von Braun. Truax was uh, one of the first guys to, with a rocketry background, to, you know, interview War von Braun. Surrendered, I'm sorry, so when the Germans surrendered in World War II, uh, Robert Truax was able to, I believe he interrogated or interviewed Werner von Braun, is that right? Okay. That's right, that's right. Later, you know, he was an early advocate for stage combustion, which back back then in the U.S. we were calling it the topping cycle, and so the the Russians actually developed this uh, earlier in early 60s, and we didn't wind up doing stage combustion until later, until we had the space shuttle flying, but he was an early advocate for that. You know, a little bit ahead of his time, at least in the U.S., for for that technology. He also was an early advocate for the submarine launched ballistic missiles. Yeah. Sea to air. That's right. So he, yeah, so he, he wound up working on like the Polaris uh, missile, which is, I think, our first uh, submarine launched ballistic missile. And then he, he went on to work with the Air Force. You know, he was in the Navy, but he was, uh, the Air Force was basically borrowing him because they wound up getting into the, you know, ballistic missile stuff. Uh, earlier than the, the Navy did and so he worked on the Thor intermediate range ballistic missile and so like he wrote the first system requirements for the Thor and then you know later the, the Thor became the, the baseline for the Delta rocket so it, it was the Delta 
that's, that's right. The, uh, the fourth iteration of the Thor, and fourth, uh, the fourth Greek letter in the alphabet ended up sticking and oh, becoming cool. the name for the program. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So some history of our little today. But they're, they're all derivatives of the same motor. Oh. But yeah, Rob, Robert Truex gained distinction over at LA Air Force Base in the, in the early days of the Space and Missile Center, uh, being the only inductee from the U.S. Navy uh, to come into the Air Force Hall of Fame for his work in the in the early days of the ballistic missile program and, and moreover i i believe i read that the air force offered him uh, uh Colonel, the rank of Colonel. Oh, that's right. Uh, okay. To come over from the Navy based on the work he did, and he turned it down. He turned it down and, and retired from the Navy as a captain, which is in essence the same thing. But uh, This is when he took the, up with the Air Force. It, it, yes. Well, he, he, he had worked jointly because of his background, because the strength of what he, his contributions the Air Force recognized in the 60s. The, the 50s and 60s were a, a really tough time in the, even the lens of the Cold War. And uh, who could develop a, a larger lifter, and and the U.S. was at a was at a disadvantage. I, I think Richard knows more about that subject, but I just wanted to chime in that uh, yeah, Truex really gained a lot of distinction during his military career, which would later lead him into Aerojet. Cool, Richard. That's yeah, that's right. that's that's absolutely uh, right. And uh, so so you know he had a very legitimate uh, background when he went up going and working for Aerojet. And at Aerojet is probably where he worked on the thing where he is probably most well known for, and uh, it's the Sea Dragon rocket. And so this is where he sort of uh, refined the idea of these uh, big dumb boosters. And the whole idea was to, uh, instead of building the rocket to be higher performance, to build it to be just bigger. Right, so you get the benefit of scale, and then you know he's talking about dropping all the tolerances, making it simpler, doing a pressure-fed rocket, you know, and that makes it heavier, but you just make it bigger to get the same payload. Huge. And so that's right. And so the Sea Dragon twice the size of the the uh, the, the Apollo. Yeah, uh, the Saturn V. Yeah, it's the size it's, of the it's, Saturn V. It's truly massive. Right, right. So, uh, and it's often criticized along that ground that it's just this, you know, absolutely massive rocket. But, you know, what's often lost from that context is the fact that he was actually responding to some stuff that NASA was looking for at the time. It was post Apollo. They were talking about going to Mars, and so it is on the higher range of the payload capability. But you know, we're talking about setting up a Mars outpost, having that million pound payload is you know would be really nice to have and so he was responding to the high end of what they would have been interested in but it you know was a feasible range and also around the same time and maybe even a little bit earlier the russians were looking at a rocket that was one and a half times larger even than the sea dragon and that's the it it was a nuclear version of the ur 700 which would have been like uh, a bigger brother to the proton rocket so it's not so yeah it's it's giant one of the largest rockets ever seriously considered but it you know nothing about it is you know unfeasible so you know they had outside reviewers saying yeah yeah it's big it's unusual but it's possible it's technically achievable and if I'm not and then, uh, from my understanding, this rocket was supposed to launch from the ocean. Is that right? 
right? That's right. And that's what made it the logistics possible to mm-hmm. to move to maneuver such a gigantic uh, structure. Okay. All right. Was that no? They wouldn't have to have the gantries. It, it would have built it on land. Might have even made it impractical. Uh, it, that's 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 right. There, but, right. But still, po- within the realm of possibility. I, just to correct you, I think uh, Sea Dragon was published in '63. That probably would have been in the early days as Apollo was being discussed. It would have been in the early concept phase. So. A lot of concepts were floating. Uh, oh, right, right. It would right. have been out of place. It would have yeah, been out of you're place right, at that right. time. So it never came to it never came to life. It's just right. That's the point. It was just NASA fine. gave it serious consideration. Na- Na- NASA and a few others did. The the Air Force did not, but NASA certainly did. Right. That that's that's right. So so yeah, I might have the, the time wrong, like you're saying, like it was proposed uh, earlier, but it was still supposed to be something to be built after the the Saturn V. And yeah, one thing we also I think we forgot to mention that it was supposed to be reusable, and this was one of the big benefits of it. Uh, was to you know be a big uh, reduction in cost because you can reuse it obviously. Yeah, I want to and and reusable uh, part of, of that. Okay, so um, how many stages did this rocket or this rocket was this rocket supposed to have? Mm-hmm. Sea drive. Uh, that this was a two stage, right? Right. Okay. So they obviously so reusability, not meaning vertical takeoff and landing like the new you know like the, the, the SpaceX rockets, but this would be what uh, yeah. crashing into really. Well, recover at sea. Yeah. Right, recover at sea. So yeah. it, it would splash down. Yeah, both stages of recovery at sea. Yeah, reassemble so. it, but fly it again. Anyway, is that is that what the, yeah. is that what the concept was? I think so. Yeah. Okay, all right. Just wanted to get that clear because when we say reusable today, people tend to think you know it lands and it takes off and it lands again. Well, recovery when, at sea is not a whole lot different. Maybe it, right. maybe how SpaceX does it is a bit more elegant, but this right. was still concept. You know, right. they, there were still a lot of things to work. Practical loads of recovering at sea were possible. But, right, right. But that was that's why it was a concept, and then certainly you know looking in the lens of time, it's, it it might have been practical. I think you know SpaceX's work has proven that this concept is not silly. Right. Okay, Rick. Right, right. So, so yeah, about, yeah, it was a very common theme in Trax's work to do the sea launch and the sea recovery. And one thing to mention about the sea recovery is that uh, since his rocket was pressure fed, it, the, the, the skin, the, the structure of the vehicle is a lot beefier than, say, what the SpaceX is doing with the Falcon 9 and turbo pump fed vehicle. You know, it, the pressure fed vehicle has to, you know, hold the pressure in the entire vehicle. And so that means it's going to be a lot more robust for splashdown. And uh, the space shuttle's solid rocket boosters did a splashdown. And, you know, you wouldn't call a solid rocket fuel pressure fed, but its structure does retain the pressure of, of that. That engine, so it, it's it's most comparable to that, you know. It, except instead of having to do this more complicated, costly refurbishment process that the SRBs need to do, the idea would be you just pull it out, maybe you, you rinse it down to get the salt water off of it, and you fill it back up and go. And uh, interestingly, he actually demonstrated this with the Arobi. The Arobi is two rockets. The it had a solid fuel booster and a liquid portion. Uh, I don't think he did it with the with the solid rocket part, but I'm not sure about the details there. So he took this rocket and you know they did a sea launch and sea recovery back in the day with that rocket to demonstrate it, and they they reused and reflew the rocket. There might be a historical first that people might be missing, but it depends on whether or not he's using the solid rocket booster. So I don't know the details of that and they haven't been able to find it but uh, the version with the solid rocket booster was suborbital so if he was doing that that would mean 
he was doing the first reusable space flight. But if he wasn't using the solid rocket booster, the liquid portion by itself couldn't reach the Von Kármán line. So, so uh, maybe I need to do some more research on that. But so, so definitely he was an early pioneer on on reusability, right? And uh, also another little interesting thing: there's a paper I found. He he was also working on autogenous pressurization. So he did some experiments, I believe some at uh, Aerojet, and later he did some on his own, where basically you put liquid oxygen oxygen in a tank, you let it heat up, and then as you uh, basically open the valves, it uh, boils off. And, and this is getting into a little bit of the physics of, of fluids, but it can pressurize itself if from, you know, look, look at tank works, basically. Um, and you do the same thing with liquid oxygen, you have to let the tank get warm, right? And so so later after he, he left uh, Aerojet, he wound, you know, he starts his own company, like Truax Engineering. Then he came to work with uh, Evil Knievel on the X-2 and the Snake River Canyon jump. So this is a pretty interesting thing. And it, the rocket is a steam rocket. And it works uh, the same way I was talking before about the self-pressurization. So you take a, a pressure vessel, you fill it with water, and you heat it up. And you get it above the boiling temperature. But because it's under pressure, that keeps it from boiling, basically. And then when you open the valve, it all like flash boils at once and shoots all the steam out uh, of the back. And so they uh, they did that with a lot of rockets for like stunt stuff at the time. They had like drag racers were with, with the sort of stuff. I believe, I believe a Trax also did that with a motorcycle stunts on the ground. And that's all with Evil Knievel, right? That's all when he was working with Evil Knievel. Yeah, with yeah. People at the time. That's, the that, that's with you know, Evil Knievel. Daredevil. Daredevil yeah. guys out there. Yeah. 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 But Evil Knievel was. Yeah, yeah. It was, did he work with a, a couple other people? I'm not certain, but he certainly known with that's right. Evil Knievel. Okay. They, they had a relationship. They did set. They did a few projects together. Right. Right. Okay. Right. That right. Rocket, and so that rocket that he designed or that they built for uh, the Evil Knievel is that the Volks rocket or is it the Ariba one? So, so the Volt rocket did start with Evil Knievel, but I did want to back up a moment. Before he did that, they worked on Snake River Canyon jump. And in our first episode, we had uh, Waldo Sticks talking with us, right? And he was working on uh, the... Mad, Mad Mike Hughes? Yeah. Mike yeah. Hughes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Mad Mike Hughes. Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm terrible at names. Uh, so, yeah. So, he worked with Mad Mike Hughes right. on a steam rocket, and... That is like inspired by, based on Evil Knievel's Snake River Canyon Jump. After that happened, Evil Knievel, you know, of course, in, in his typical way, well, what's the next thing? What's the next, you know, thing? The next biggest, yeah, the next big stunt. And so what Truax proposed was to send them into space. And this became the X3 Volts rocket. So uh, Evil Knievel gave him a little bit of money uh, to start doing some research on it. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely Same not money. Yeah. 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 Well, well, well this was... Well, this was for funding, like, the feasibility of paper study of it, basically. And so uh, what happened at the time was that Evil Knievel was having a biography of him written, right? And so he approved biography before reading it entirely, 
right? And so the author included some not so flattering details about Evil Knievel. I, I don't want to get into any of that. But what happened was Evil Knievel and a friend of his went and beat the author. I mean, to yeah. do what you do, man. You yeah. know, those stunts. Uh, you gotta have. Yeah. Some sort of an insane personality, some kind of a... Well, it, it takes something that most yeah. of us don't have. Yeah, exactly. And, and, exactly. And guys that want to live on the edge usually do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Both exactly. on the stunt course and in office. And on life, and yeah. On, and in life. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. You were saying yeah, that. well, they found out... Yeah, they found out uh, why it's evil Knievel and not nice guy Knievel. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so... <laughs> So what, what happened was Evil Knievel, he got out of doing any sort of uh, like prison time or anything like that. But the whole thing, the lawsuit, this kind of stuff, he uh, you know, also lost sponsors, I think. And so, uh, so in this era, Evil Knievel basically went bankrupt uh, for a while. And so the, the part where, right, so uh, that would be like uh, you know, Virgin Galactic losing Richard Branson kind of a thing. Truax still liked the idea of this. It was the X3 is what it started with. He also called it the Volkswagen, you know, in reference to the Volkswagen Beetle. You know, the idea it's this, you know, cheap, it's the people's car kind of a thing. Yeah. And uh, it also was called a Project Private Enterprise as, as well. And so Truax, so from working with Evil Knievel, so he kind of saw how he operated, right? And saw how Evil Knievel would raise money. He's, you know, he'd go, you go bust to the media, say you're going to do this thing, and, you know, show up to the stunt. And what Evil Knievel would make money off of is selling the rights to air it on TV, right? right. Truax sort of copied. Uh, some of Evil Knievel's business model. So this this kind of gets into like tourism, space tourism. Uh, his plan for space tourism. Right, right, right. Yeah. So so this project is a pretty interesting one. Just a little footnote. I was going to mention uh, for a while the pilot he was going to have was uh, Gina Yeager. Yeah. Right. Now, no relation to Chuck Yeager, but she would later go on to fly with uh, Dick Rattan on the Voyager. So she was um, one of the pilots from the first Circumglober global flight. So what went around the world? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Non yeah, non non-stop flight as well. Yeah. What was the pilot? Bert Rattan, right? And then are they related? Dick's, are they related? I yes. believe they are. I believe they are. Okay, and I know they're brothers. They're brothers. And are they the founders of this composite? Scale composite. Scale composite. Um, Bert. That's that's Bert's that's business, Bert. which sold to. North yeah. North so. Okay. Yeah, so so Dick Rattan, I know he's a pilot. I don't know how involved he was in scaled composites, but yeah, like they were saying, scaled composites is generally Bert Rattan thing. So yeah, so so it's uh, you know rubs elbows with all that sort of stuff. Dick Rattan also flew one of the rocket planes for X Corps. Oh, cool. When when people talk about this sort of project private enterprise stuff, it's it's very much before anybody else was talking about this sort of stuff. In the early stuff, I believe he was talking about this reusability commercial space flight before the space shuttle was even flying. And so this this is a very different sort of business environment from now where like you look at SpaceX uh, and people are saying, well, you know, we need something that's going to replace the shuttle. We want something commercial and reusable. When Truax was doing it, the, the reaction was more like, why are you going to bother? The space shuttle is going to fix everything. You know, it's going to be, we're, you know, there were early plans to have passengers, you know, in the space shuttle bay. There's, there's drawings with it. You know, the, the whole space shuttle bay is just filled with, the, with just seats, you know. And so, so he was, you know, very ahead of his time. And it is a very different 
environment. So, so yeah, the I, I kind of wanted to talk about, I guess, a critique of his uh, project, Private Enterprise, which I, I guess I got three main points, right? One of this is this business stuff. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, in, in most of the stuff that I've looked at from Truax, his business model seemed to be going after what Evil Knievel was doing with, with public relations. And that works for, you know, getting up some interest and hype, but he didn't talk, I think, enough about the actual business model, right? And so, like, in most of the stuff he talks about sending up an astronaut, but he doesn't talk as much about, okay, I'm going to sell tickets, right? And the business is going to make money, right? So, right, so I think Evil Knievel kind of gave him the inspiration that, well, hey, you know, he can do this stuff, right? But may have led him astray uh, since it's not a more typical business route and is harder to convince, you know. So if you're doing, like, a stunt for, you know, publicity and mankind, how does that pay the investors back kind of a thing. So, you know, that's perhaps one weakness of his business model. And then it was just a much different environment. People weren't looking to invest in this kind of stuff. So it really was an uphill uphill battle. And then with, with his PR stuff, he leaned on the idea of being this, you know, crazy rocket guy, you know, doing it in his garage, a very DIY space program. And I think that's that's definitely good. It definitely appeals to me. I like it. But is that the right message to like business people? Confidence that yeah, yeah, some definitely. crazy guy in his garage, no matter what his resume is, he's still building. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. It was, exactly. It, it's a bit of a yeah. Seventies. That's a huge leap because uh, you know, almost in a way, Apollo ruined it in the sense that we had so much success with so much of the world's resources thrown at it, and then to look at somebody in their garage who had a great pedigree, great resume, very, very capable. I just, I just don't, I just don't think the public even now really gives, uh, it's a huge leap. I don't think the public gives much credit to, well, to the, ta- the average tanker, even if it, even if the per- tanker is well above yeah, average. Yeah, yeah. I, well, mean, well I mean, Elon Musk is, uh, I mean, he's not exactly a tinkerer. But he's also not, uh, you know, like a space engineer or no, a but rocket he, scientist. He hired a tremendous number of people, and he still and he, got a lot of shit for it. He uh, a lot of did. the space community did not accept them right away, okay. and they're still having trouble doing that. So imagine some guy in his in his in his garage trying to fly people in space. True, true, and, that, and that's kind of why we wanted to talk about Truax. Right, right. Was to show was to show that the the model that we're seeing today, and even though it's enjoying success, that there were others that came before. That's right. That's right. And, and so, right. so true. So. So, we're, so here we are in the 70s with Truax in, in his garage in the Volks rocket. Um, well, and I, I, I just, I'm just trying to dovetail back to right, where right. Richard picked, I want to pick left off. Right, right. I agree with all of that. Yes, so he was leaning on this PR strategy that really worked at the time to get sort of attention, but is kind of a double-edged sword where, you know, he's getting the message out, he's getting PR, he did a ton of interviews and this kind of stuff, but that you know, at the same time, may not have helped the sort of the business side guys. So that's so that's all the second point where his PR isn't quite tuned right to, to business-minded people, right? right. I want to uh, interject here. I mean, the, the business part and then the PR. I, I mean, the, there wasn't a whole lot of guaranteed safety and stuff. He was, you know, he sold it kind right. of like, well, yeah, you're doing it at your own risk. I mean, although he had a right. lot of people sign up, for the because right. the idea was the daredevil aspect of yeah, it brings people at, in. People love the spectacle, right. but at the same time, the daredevil aspect doesn't lend itself to credibility. Right. 
safety. Right. So you're right. You you can get in and you can get funded and get started, but it comes at, like Richard's saying, it comes mm-hmm. at a cost. That's right. And if you're trying right. to make a business, credibility is, is extremely important. And at yeah. some point, yes, uh, with passenger yeah. travel, uh, safety people will. Come the conversation back, yeah. on safety will come up. Yeah. That's people want to come back to Earth alive. You know. Right. Right. So. Right, so so like I don't know exactly how he would have to have done that differently, uh, but you know that's I, I guess one one thing you know that was hard to overcome at the time. And the third thing, and this is the only sort of technical uh, engineering criticism I might have for the project of private enterprise is that um, he very much leaned on surplus components and used components and I think this is fine if you're talking about like a prototype vehicle a proto flight vehicle even and he kind of leaned on that as a business strategy well you know for Atlas and Thor they were producing LR 101 uh, Vernier thrusters and he got them surplus for like almost nothing and that's certainly a great way to get started at a low cost but when you're talking about a business and you're talking about making money, well, how do you do your second one, right? And now this can create a portion of the market that is cheaper. The orbitals uh, technologies wise up using this route later with ICBM uh, solid rocket boosters. So, so you see their Minotaur vehicles and they're using that strategy, right? Yeah, right. They're surplus Miniman rockets that are launching lighter payloads. Yeah. That that's right. And and they weren't the first ones to uh, come up with that idea. Uh, the Titans pedigree started as an ICBM, and it continued as as a space launcher, even after liquid fueled uh, ICBMs went out of vogue. But the Titan legacy remained until the end of the 20th century. So this reliance on used components uh, kind of also is going to take the edge off the business stuff, where you know it's it, it can reduce some of the cost, but it doesn't necessarily address the underlying cost, right? So if that engine costs a lot of money to build and develop, and then you buy it cheap on surplus, that doesn't mean the engine was cheaper to make, right? One uh, one of the things he talked about at the time. Uh, he he had the guidance systems from an X-15, I believe. So this this really expensive guidance system that the government spent millions developing, he got for almost nothing. Again, this sort of you know maybe reduces his cost, but doesn't hit the underlying issues. But but also, if he did the same thing today, you wouldn't need an X-15, you know, IMU because they make cheap IMUs today. Even the fancier like laser gyroscopes. Because they make integrated circuit IMUs, and this is kind of what they use, like in Wii remotes or like your phone can tell which way it's tipped, and and they're good for stuff like that. They're good for a lot of things, but for rocket flights, they're not as good because they have a tendency to drift. Or but to have laser gyroscopes that that are better, and those are a few thousand dollars compared to a few million. So so like even if you're doing the same thing today, you'd have a much easier time technically than what Truex was looking at back when he was doing it. I do want to bring up uh, the LR 101, right? So that would have been an expensive engine to produce. But around the same time, Dave Crisali of the RRS, right, in the 70s, he built a liquid fuel rocket uh, that was regeneratively cooled that was about the same size in thrust as the LR-101. And I guess maybe it's too bad they didn't meet up and and work together because then Truax would have had some, you know, engines that would have been cheap to produce new that he could have bases rocking around you know that sort of uh, concept you know that's kind of my take on you know the x3 the project private enterprise uh thing where 
he was way ahead of his time. He was doing amazing work, but there's just a few flaws that I think really worked against him pulling it off then. Yeah, just a few things being different could have could have changed it. So if Evil Knievel hadn't beat up that guy, you know, maybe the first private space flight would have been, you know, 20 years before the Ansari X Prize. And so, yeah, so, so it's all really interesting stuff to look at. And then one thing that I did manage to dig up that doesn't, you know, the information is is out there when you look up stuff on Truex is that he actually was involved in Ansari X Prize, and I believe this is the last, probably the last thing that he worked on in, in rocketry. Okay, cool. Let's hear about it. How is he, right. how is he wrapped up in that? Or part of so there, there was a team called uh, American Astronautics. What, what I was able to find is they've got two like uh, reports that they or summaries that they send uh, into the uh, the X Prize you know foundation, and they have one that's earlier on, and they have one that's later on in in the project. And so the initial design, I think, is actually one of the better uh, Ansari X Prize. Uh, proposals, right? And it's very much in, in Truax's fashion. It mentions in, in the report that Truax is working on it. It's based on the X3 uh, Volt rocket. Truax would have been in his, his 80s. In his 80s. He would have been in his 80s. He passed away at the age of 93 in 2010. Wow. So that would have so he... that would put him in his late 80s. Okay. But as I understand, he was still very, very active. I mean, right. despite, despite his age. Mm -hmm. um, the, there was a real momentum built up in the 90s, you know, when, when, the, when the X Prize was announced. I, I was a regular reviewer of Space News as a, as a young man in, you know, in undergraduate school back in Wichita. And, and the Ansari X Prize was announced in the mid-90s. It finally started to get, it, it drew a lot of attention. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of different competitors uh, throughout the world, but in the end, it really just necked down to a few. Um, Rotary Rocket was during that time. Um, you know, even even SpaceX and Blue Origin had their foundings in around that time, although they they weren't part of the X Prize competition. But there, there, there's a tremendous amount of, of of surplus talent and a lot of different pioneers out there. But uh, American Astro, uh, what, I'm sorry, do I get the name right? American Astronautics Corporation. That that was the the Spirit of Liberty was their proposed entrant vehicle. That's, that's right, Spirit of Liberty and American Astronautics. I, I believe they wound up changing their name after X-Prize. They didn't go long, uh, very, they didn't live very much longer after the X-Prize. And yeah, like I was saying, I think their proposal is a, a fairly, one of the better proposals in the X-Prize, because some of them you know, were kind of goofy. Some of them were very much just window dressing. You know, there were some you know competitors that really weren't all that serious. It, it was it was just going to be a simple you know a sea launched sea recovery rocket like the Volt rocket. It was just going to be a bit bigger and have three people in it. Now, one odd thing about this is they were actually proposing using hydrazine. Uh, and, and nitrogen tetroxide and I remember reading stuff about this talking about like oh yeah we can convince an airport to let us do this and it's like no it's not going to happen <laughs> so that's the only odd thing about this early uh, X-Prize design is that they were talking about using hypergols which is kind of a non-starter in that sort of environment from my uh, from you know, from toxicity. my toxicity oh toxicity it's okay. toxicity okay. hydrogen and uh, NTO are both propellants that have the advantage that they ignite on contact with each other that's oh. that's the meaning of hypergolic okay um, when 
when the when the U.S. was researching propellants in the beginning ICBM days, they realized that kerosene and LOX had a logistical problem. That LOX was cryogenic; it would boil off. You had to make it, and you had to tank it, and you had it, you'd have a tremendous delay. So they wanted they the research chemists throughout the country uh, were looking for the magic formula, and what they arrived at was uh, what they would call storable, because within a reasonable temperature band, uh, just above the freezing of water and and under the you know within the band, same similar temperature range as water, you could store them in a container under little or no pressure, and keeping them separate, you could you could mix them on contact and and have a very reasonably reasonable performing rocket. And so ICBMs were built around that, but they had a they had a terrible uh, toxicity problem. Uh, hydrazine is, is is toxic only within a few parts per million. It has no trace whatsoever. NTO, uh, nitrogen tetroxide, reacts with the oxygen in the air, forming nitric acid in your lungs, and it kills you more slowly. Wow. Okay. It's 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 now there there are some that will disagree with me. I know Dave Crusali is, is at, works with that with his company, uh, Polaris Propulsion, out at the at the RSMTA site. He's had a lot of experience with it, with the proper precautions and and with the proper materials, compatible with proper compatible materials, it can be handled. But Richard's absolutely correct. In, in an airport environment where you can barely trust somebody to keep the cigarette out of their mouth when they're tanking dead A, <laughs> right? You probably don't. A, a, a lot of safety concerns will get raised right. about can you properly, reliably. Uh, tank and handle hydrazine and NTO. Right. With a, and if you do have an incident, it, it's quite serious. You, you have to clear the area. Spilling jet fuel is not fun, but it, it's not, the, the hazards are not the same. I right. think that's what Richard right. is getting gotcha, at. Got you, got you. Okay. They, they proposed that rocket, and I also remember reading some stuff where they, they were talking about actually doing like a test flight as a demonstration, partly as you know, potential attract investors of actually launching a Truax's Volt rocket, right? I think they went up dropping that. Part of the rules for the XPRIZE were you have to be able to reproduce the hardware. So they didn't want just, you know, surplus hardware approach. They wanted new hardware that was low cost. And so you could, so this version of a rocket didn't stop using the LR-101s and was using a different surplus rocket, I believe from TRW. TRW wasn't interested in producing the rocket for them, and American uh, astronautics wasn't interested in paying them to do that because their their full version, uh, the Spirit of Liberty, would use a different engine anyways, so it wound up getting mixed. So this was kind of like the last chance for Truax's rocket, and you know it didn't it didn't come together uh, for that. But what's also interesting is the second report from the same company that I have is a quite a bit different. So instead of three passengers, it's now seven. So it's a much larger. It's going to be much more difficult to produce. It now ditches the sea recovery in favor for a paraglider. And uh, also they, they move to LOX kerosene away from the hypergols. And also it, you know, it makes no mention of Truax in this one. Whereas in the first one, they're you know, they want to lean on Trax's, you know, credentials and credibility to say, hey, we have a legit, you know, he's in the Air Force Space Hall of Fame, right, working with us. But later on, they they don't make any mention of him. So I don't know what happened there, you know. I've, I've never read or heard anything uh, as to why, you know, if he left the team or... Or not, you know, he was getting on an age, so maybe, maybe it was just time for him to retire, or maybe since they weren't going to fly the uh, the Voltrac Volt rocket, 
you know, I, you know, I don't know, but that that's a you know a story I'd like to find the answer to. So, right, right. so how did the, what does it mean to come into this Ansari? It didn't. No, the the idea behind the passenger travel on the Soyuz was really born out of an American company working with a Russian company to essentially sell seats. Now that's okay. that's getting into Dennis Tito. That that's getting based tourism. But you know we want to stay on topic with Robert Truax. And, right. and Robert right. Truax's contribution was was several and many. And and his legacy is his. His work inspired several others. I think it's quite fair to say that beyond Sea Dragon, you know, with because of his constant advocacy, many others saw to do saw to do the very thing he was trying to do, which was trying to let the public know the space technologies are out there, and there's more and more people every day learning them, mm-hmm. even if they're relearning them from scratch. Right. And that with uh, the the, uh, the the idea is attractive has been attractive for generations right and so it, it goes back it goes as far back as we can tell to, to Robert and from his passion as, a, as an amateur rocketry enthusiast in the 40s to his fortunate work with the Navy with uh, with the Navy right. uh, leading the TRW leading into the 70s uh, which was a extraordinarily interesting time for for what would become private space I I don't know if it was, I don't want to go as far as say that he coined the term private space, but I, I know that he, he, Truax's name is definitely among those who would be considered for that title to, to, have, to have coined the term private space. Great. There's a lot more to talk about on this uh, subject and about this uh, person in particular. That maybe in the future we'll revisit it or, or not, we'll, we'll see. But uh, I thank you all for listening today. And uh, we greatly appreciate you uh, showing up and checking us out on Instagram. If you're viewing our YouTube channel and you're listening to this podcast, that's, you know, we appreciate that as well. Uh, you can also show your appreciation by going to our website uh, and purchasing some of our stuff there. We have cups, we have t-shirts, we have hats. And also support the RRS, which we are members of. David Norling is a member of the RRS. So is Richard Garcia and myself. You can go to the RRS.org and you can always uh, donate or support, support the RRS. And that's all for today. Uh, thank you again for listening to the Rocket Talk Radio Show. We'll see you again next time.